Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go sell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative, authors of The Creativity Cure, a do-it-yourself prescription for happiness, and physicians, Carrie and Alton Barron, share the importance of creative action in fueling happiness. They cover the five psychologically researched steps to achieving deeper satisfaction and alleviating depression by tapping into our creativity. Hey guys, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Oh, thanks for having us. Thanks so much. We're really honored to be here. Yeah, you know, so I still, for the life of me, can't remember how I came across your book. Uh, but when I stumbled upon it, I thought two medical doctors who've written a book about creativity uh, as a way to heal, you know, diseases, heal all sorts of things. I, I just couldn't wait to talk to you guys, and I'm really thrilled to have you here. So, on that note, can you tell us a, a bit about yourselves, your your background, your story, your journey, and how that has led you to what you guys are up to in the world today, and, and to this book? Well, yeah, sure. I think we both have um, we have a story that runs together and a story you know of, of separate uh, sort of interests. But um, I think we can, I can say for both of us that it's both a personal and a professional passion. Right. We, uh, if you want to go back to, I think our origins are are very diverse. Carrie grew up in uh, 
a fairly bucolic setting on Long Island in New York, and I grew up in, on a farm in Texas. So uh, we never the twain shall meet, but we did meet in uh, in a medical school. We met actually on our interview for medical school and mm-hmm. spent the day together. And normally it's a competitive, intense thing, and we were actually just bonded to one another. And and, and we both sort of talked about uh, creative life and writing life even then, as we were looking at the little preemies in the neonatal unit walking mm-hmm. by. And, and kind of the story we've been together ever since, pretty much um, for thirty years almost. Yeah. And, yeah. And then when we after we finished. Uh, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I did. We went to medical school together, and in the throes of the crack cocaine epidemic of Charity Hospital in New Orleans at, in tu, at Tulane, went through that. It was really an amazing experience to be in New Orleans, where there are so many creative musicians and other people, and and uh, alternative lifestyles. And so, so I also I think that we were both very influenced by our our families. I was. Um the young, uh, second youngest of eight cousins, many of whom were established artists, and we lived um, near the water in a place called Cold Spring Harbor. It was um, a very pretty place. So I was around people who made things, who were very passionate about making things, who cared a lot about that. A lot of people in my family cooked, cooked from scratch all the time. You know, we spent time in the Adirondacks where, you know, one cousin would pick chanterelle mush- mushrooms from a, a secret patch. And so, and I used... Um, the setting that I grew up in, I would walk to the beach or, or um, try to be near the water. And that was the time that I could reflect and digest and sort through. And that just became a way of life. And then later, professionally, I think I began to notice as soon as technology, a little bit after technology became so much a part of people's lives, that patients were coming in and, and talking about um, playing music or knitting or making things. Um, and it became increasingly important, it seemed, to people. And we sort of talked about it, Alton and I, and we, Alton's a hand surgeon, so we put it together that maybe people are responding to technology, that it's so wonderful technology, but we're so inundated with it that we need some kind of grounding in to the earth, to things that we make, to nature, to our hands, and that's really what how we came up with the creativity cure, because we really feel that... Um, sometimes it's really life choices as opposed to med- traditional medical treatment that can lift somebody out of an anxiety or depression or despair. Right. And, and as Carrie has already alluded to, she came from a very creative family in the traditional sense of artists and musicians and so forth, and in, a, and in the New York area, which is filled with that type of lifestyle, whereas I came from more a family of makers and builders and doers, and we built our own barn, two-story barn, and, and built fences and, uh, and mowed grass in countless ways and, and so forth, and had a vegetable garden. And so this, this, this true groundedness uh, in, in life was kind of my origin and, and being able to put things together, and that's why I became an orthopedic surgeon. That's why, how we came to, to these uh, kind of what I brought to it as well as what she brought to it, both of us feeling in, a, in the same and yet different ways that, that these fundamental hand-based activities, be they creative or be they self-sustaining and, and just uh, in, intending to take care of yourself in your life, both of them are so critical to our overall well-being. And then we started collecting Carrie more than me because she... Uh, is this was primarily her project, and and I was a support staff, and it, it, doing the research. And there's just so much more research than you could possibly imagine to support these these fundamental concepts in the creativity cure. It's not just some uh, Carrie's idea or my ideas put together. These are founded on a, a really a large body of scientific research. It's really five steps. We've actually it's become seven, and we found research to back up each step ways of living, style of living, as a way to really feel better about living. Hmm. So we'll get into all of that. But, I, you know, I, I want to go back to to the beginning of this whole story. Uh, you know, to me, one of the things that's really fascinating is that you meet in, you know, your, your interviews for med school. And to me, that seems like such an unlikely place to have this kind of a discussion. Uh, you know, about a creative life, you know, I only know because this process is somewhat familiar to me. My sister has never told me a story like that. And I'm just curious, uh, you know, how you recognize moments like that uh, in environments that might not seem like they would lead to something like this uh, when it's in your own life, because I think that there are molding moments and it sounds like that moment was one for both of you. 
And I look back at my own life and I realize I missed so many of them. And I look at so many adults and I feel like they miss so many of them. And I'm wondering if there's sort of an awareness that you can develop for moments like that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question. You know, I think the only thing I would say to that is that I think we were, we had a funny chemistry that first day and the chemistry that we had allowed this conversation to take place. So what I would say is look for those kinds of moments in your life. If you have a meaningful, I've, I, you know, I've had patients come in and tell me I had this really meaningful uh, relationship with this 80 year old man in a bar. It was, this woman was 35, but she said it was just really intellectual and interesting to her. And they, they exchanged uh, emails and they kept up this conversation. A lot of people wouldn't do that or wouldn't follow up on it. It was really lovely the way she described it. He became a mentor for her in some way. So I think when you have a moment, don't dismiss it. You know, if somebody strikes, you reach out and we didn't know either one of us if we were ever going to see each other again. And then we both accepted Tulane and we both went. So that was just kind of funny how it ended up. Yeah. And I think that, that um, you talk about being open to these kind of conversations and identifying them in the moment and how they can enrich your life. And I think, if I may be so bold, for Carrie, this was a life she was steeped in. Uh, medicine was sort of outside of the comfort zone. And the comfort zone was the creativity, the conversations, the the um, the human dialogue in that way. Whereas my comfort zone, I had been in engineering, and I was coming, and and I had already had a house painting business and tried dental school, and so I was sort of open to anything. And coming from, I think the upbringing I did in small town Texas, I was more craving rather than having experienced so much of it, I was more craving this type of dialogue and this sort of creative expression. So together, it was a comfort for her, and it was a craving for me together, I think, because she was down in, in the south uh, interviewing for med school, coming from the northeast. So I think it, it, it just worked. And that's, I think, it's more just being open to it. And we, we talk about this in the book a lot. Right, and I think one of the things, you know, when we talk about definitions of creativity, and I think there are many really great definitions out there, but they're, they're not all the same. But I think one really important one is mindset and, that, what that, and receptivity. The idea of letting things in and letting them take you somewhere where you may not be comfortable or that may not make sense or may not be logical, but when you trust those things, you can end up in really interesting enjoyable places. Hmm. So let me ask you this. I mean, you both mentioned New Orleans, which obviously is this just creative hotbed full of musicians, full of artists. And I am really interested in how the experience of a place like New Orleans has sort of shaped your worldview and, and shaped, uh, you know, your med school experience as well as your practice as, as doctors. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would say that I am so glad that I went there. You know, at first it was so scary to just go to this other part of the country with a very different culture. I'd really never been out of the Northeast. And it was incredible. New Orleans is an incredible place. I mean, the food, the the architecture, the people, it's just so um, stimulating. And everybody studied in coffee shops. You know, there was PJs, lots of things. And so I think it was just, you know, it was learning medicine, but it was learning it in the context of a very rich, exciting culture, a lot going on with music. I don't know what you would say yes. about that. Well, I Wait. would say that it is such a confluence of so many uh, there's the Spanish heritage, the French heritage, the Cajun heritage, the, the Creole heritage, the black heritage, that, that all are just this swirling melt, melting pot of wonderfulness. And if you're open to it, it will just completely uh, take you over. And I think that, that being in the trenches as we were at Charity Hospital, we also experienced so much of a, a, a kind of a, a richness of human experience that you don't get, that many people are not fortunate enough to 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 experience with patients in dire straits and, and gunshot wounds. And all of that just formed this incredible, almost barnacle of experience on our, on our hearts and our souls forever. And I also think this sort of is a little bit tangential. It's a subject that we're very interested in right now. But, you know, um, to me, learning, if, if it's all cerebral and all focused and all what's called directed thinking as opposed to undirected thinking, I feel like that's not complete learning, at least for me. And I think that what was great about New Orleans, it was very intense didactically in med school, but 
there was such a learning that took place through the senses, through the body. You know, it was a beautiful place. We could run on the levee. And, you know, so I think nature and all those other kinds of sensual experiences have a lot to do with how you learn and how much you take in. Because if you're deprived of those things, if, if, you're in a, if you're in a dark room studying in front of a computer all day, I think that, you know, for some people anyway, I think that, you know, learning can actually be hampered. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as, as somebody who spends an insane amount of time in the ocean, I would I would completely agree with that. <laughs> right, right. You know, so, so let me ask you this on that note. Uh, I mean, you guys were immersed in this very culturally rich environment. And let's say that's not necessarily physically accessible to everybody, which it just isn't going to be in the case of, of you know, the fact that we're just all distributed to different places geographically. How do we bring that and, and how do we create that in our own world uh, on a daily basis so that we are in, in environments that inspire us, that, that help us to really tap into this creativity? Well, I think that there are many forms, and Carrie has spoken eloquently about this and, and far more eloquently than me, in terms of what the types of creativity and whether it's imminent or whether it's just in your day-to-day life. And I think uh, uh, two examples would be my parents, who are very old, but they live out uh, on a lake in Austin, and, and they live a fairly ascetic life. They, they take care of their yard, they take care of their boats and their boat dock, they restain their deck, they, they do all their home improvements around, and they seem very stimulated. And because they're making, they're building, they're repairing. So that's one aspect. And I would say that, you know, I, I think that if you're in a city, there, there was a study, um, I, I can't remember where it was from, but there's a study that showed that, uh, I think it was in a city, but people who walked through, or kids who walked through an arboretum before they took a test did better. So if you're in a city, for example, uh, you can take the subway to the New York Botanical Gardens or a nearby park or wherever it is. You, it doesn't have to be a big space. It can be a small space. And the other thing that I would say is that, um, you know, even film or reading, a lot of it is what happens in your mind. You know, we very much believe in changing your thoughts. So if you create the right kind of stimulation in your mind, it can very much shift your mood. So Mm -hmm. that's another way where you can be taken elsewhere. Um, So if you're in a very remote place, you you know, that's why technology is great because it can connect you to very stimulating things, you know, somewhere else. But um, you just have to find a little spot. And that little spot and it can become yours. It can be a public spot. You sit on a rock, sit on a bench, close your eyes, just let it be around you. And you can turn it into something very large and wonderful for yourself. And Carrie touched on the fact that just uh, we've sort of forgotten about the beauty of books um, as we become technologically more advanced, but a book can take you far, far away from wherever you are. Yeah, you can read on Kindle, but yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah it, it's interesting to, to compare the Kindle and the physical book reading experience. And I, I, it's one of those things I still say, you know, I don't know why you still don't get the same experience. I mean, I, I vary back and forth between them depending on what kind of book it is. Yeah. Uh, where there are certain books that I just want to highlight tons of passages, but there are certain books where I, I want the physical book. Yes. Yeah, I think, yes. yeah, I agree with you totally. I mean, because it can be a very physical experience, holding the pen, the highlighter, the colors that you create, you putting your stamp in the margins in terms of your thoughts and writing them. And I know you can do that with technology, too. And I think when for me, when I need to go really fast, like if I want to skim articles to do research, I might use technology for that. I might mm-hmm. use the, my laptop for that or device. Um, but there are times when you just want that physical experience of holding those pages. Well, let's do this. Let's shift gears and and let's really get into the gist of what the creativity cure is all about. Because, you know, when I saw it, I thought, wow, this is amazing because it's an actual framework that is really step by step. It's interesting. You've taken something that, you know, typically could be interpreted in a very nonlinear way. And you've given us a linear framework to apply, which is really, really cool, I think, for people who think that way. And I'd love for you guys to walk us through that, but also told through the lens of some of your patients' stories. Would that work? Sure. Sure. I think uh, at baseline, since I'm an engineer, I think the linearity of it was not something that you're, you're absolutely right, that the subject matter would not necessarily lend itself to a linear process. And, and in fact, part of trying to put this together as a book, that was part of the struggle in a way. And, and the, the challenge was to try to create order out of something that's inherently 
creative and all over the place and, and a bit disordered in a certain way. And, and, and so um, that was our effort in doing so. And I think um, that it, it's still, even though it does follow a linear process, it's not intended to be uh, rigid in that way. And, and in fact, many people have come up to us and said, you know, I read a snippet here and a snippet there, chapter 10, chapter 3, blah, blah, blah. And I, and I go through this and it, uh, and it just seems to be something I go back to and get snippets from. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they approach a linear subject and a linear uh, process in a nonlinear way. Right. So I also have, you know, I think what, if you had to sum it up, each of the five steps, and we've added two, so now we're calling it plus two, the five-part prescription plus two, we'll get to that in a second, but each one is designed to help you inhabit a mental, a certain kind of mental space. It's to help you get to a deeper place in your mind so that you can have access to your own creative thoughts, your originality, what, how you might see things in a different way from other people. And it's very, I think it's really great to be able to go to that place because you can really surprise yourself. People can really come up with interesting things when they are in this very deep place. And it's not selfish or you know, egocentric or it's all about me. Really, I think when you reach that freedom within yourself, you can be a much more generous and generative person. Yes, and... and- Yes, and to that, it's really more that all of these things we hope are happening almost simultaneously in parallel with one another and intertwine with one another. Right, right. And also, I will say, too, just one sentence about this. You know, I, I think creativity has very ordered stages. I mean, when people write about the creative process, there are parts of it that have to do with what's called divergent thinking, which is, you know, your mind going outward, and then there's convergent thinking where you have to organize and synthesize. So, you know, there is a form. There's there's a form formulaic aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that, that whole concept of divergent and convergent thinking because, you know, I think that where we often get stuck uh, is actually in the very beginning, because we try to do it backwards. We try to do the convergent thinking in the beginning when really the beginning is the divergent part where I, I just, you know, I always tell writers, I'm like, just litter the page. It doesn't matter what shows up. You can always go back and organize later. Totally. Yes. Totally. Yes. Yeah. And well, that, also, sorry, that, go even, ahead. that even applies to science and brainstorming and that you try to come up with all the possibilities and then you gradually converge and hone down and so it really can apply creative process and creative thinking to many 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 aspects of life mm-hmm. well let's do this let's let's get into this five-part prescription uh and really i'm interested not only in the five-part prescription but also about the research that you guys have discovered to back all of this up because that was really my personal interest in this is to, to look at some of the scientific aspects of this because you know we read a lot of books about creativity and they come from these brilliant artists artists and and you look at them and they're inspiring i know because i've written one but i don't have any scientific evidence to back it up it's very anecdotal and and that's why the research part of this is really fascinating to me as well sure so yeah um well we can start with the the five steps and then there are two more that are actually covered in the book but now we like to call it five plus two so the five steps of the five-part prescription are insight which is self-knowledge movement which is exercise Mind rest, which is daydreaming, downtime, doing nothing. The fourth is your own two hands, making things, creating. And the fifth is mind shift, which is going from a dark place to a lighter place in in your everyday existence. Mm -hmm. So we can talk about um, what the value is scientifically of each one of these steps. And maybe I'll cover a couple and Alton, you can cover a couple. So I'll start with insight, which is more psychoanalytic, my my area. Um, James Pennybaker at UT, um, a psychologist, um, wrote a book called Opening Up the Healing Power of Emotions. And he basically did research to show that when people write about their troubles, um, write out their anxieties, write out the trauma on paper, there's, there's a way that they are relieved of it. It can have to do with um, sort of taking it out of the body and out of the self and putting it putting it outside. It has to do with the act of self-expression, which is important. It also has to do with the ability to reflect upon it from a distance. So then Rita Sharon, who pioneered what's called narrative medicine, um, she's a physician who found that when, when you allow patients to do the same, to tell their stories in their own words with their own prose, and you are a good listener, 
and you're not plugging people into formulaic kinds of boxes, but really hearing the story and asking questions and being intellectually curious or, or emotionally curious as a doctor, as a listener, patients do much better. So um, I think Rita Sharon's written, I don't know, four or five books about nar narrative medicine that has a lot of research in it. So they're now, you know, doctors are now trained, at least in, at Columbia and I think in some other places, to talk to patients and to learn to listen in this way. So that's insight. And then the next step is... Movement. Um, movement and exercise. And, you know, we... we I think some people feel affronted by the, the culture of exercise that has been created and, and there's all the Nike just do it commercials and Gatorade commercials and all that. And that can be a bit disheartening to people who are not intrinsically capable of or uh, given uh, have a predilection for exercise. But exercise should be very broadly defined. And, and that's why we call it movement, because it's really about moving your body, moving your joints, your limbs. And, and by moving your body and moving your, your limbs, then you're stimulating blood flow to your brain. You are conditioning your, your muscle tendon units, and you are actually deriving myriad benefits from that, which we know are very at the core physiologic benefits. And that includes... Uh, we have, you know, a decreased heart rate when we're regularly moving. We have uh, a lowering of blood pressure. We have a modulating of diabetes. We have a fighting off and staving off the inevitable osteoporosis that we that we all are subject to, and um, and then again stimulating blood flow to our brains and maintaining our cognitive health and, and as an, an antidote to to uh, to Alzheimer's and others. And so uh, the movement is, I think, intuitive. Everybody understands that. And we just want to make sure that people are aware that this must take place and that in doing so, you can elevate your psychological as well as cognitive abilities. Right. And you don't have to be a great athlete. It can be, you know, doing sit-ups on the floor in, in front of your t favorite television show or, or, you know, it can be actually moving around your house and doing chores and puttering and reaching for this on the shelf or vacuuming. It's just a matter of staying in motion. Even standing is better than sitting in terms of exercise. Right. Yeah. And, and the science, obviously, from, uh, you know, is, is that this is one where you don't need to quote specific articles because there are so many. This is ubiquitous. But um, knowing that when you are exercising, uh, you are releasing endocannabinoids, which are natural painkillers. You're releasing beta endorphins, which are natural highs. You're uh, altering your serotonin uptake, which, which helps mood. So it's really um, uh, fundamental to our health. It's just a matter of finding what you can do. And we also, and we'll come to this at the end, but a lot of people know they kind of should exercise, they want to, but they can't make themselves do it. And I would just say even five minutes of finding something that you can t at least tolerate and perhaps even like is the way to start. Just start with five minutes. Yes. And in fact, there are recent studies that have shown that five minutes alone is enough. Well, not enough, but I mean, it's, <laughs> I a, it's, it's a no, that there start. are, I'm sorry, that there are <laughs> physiologic benefits to just five, five minutes. minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, exercise, and then the next one—I mean, movement—and the next one was the mind rest, um, which is really something that I think is so key. I, I, I don't—you probably do too, but we know so many people who just feel overwhelmed. <laughs> yeah, too many messages, too many things to respond to, hyperstimulation. We weren't hard hardwired to accept this much stimulation, and I think it makes a lot of people feel stressed and distressed. And yet, you know, the pressure to keep up is is enormous. So, um, what what we would recommend is just a designated unplugging. I mean, we used to have you know Friday night Shabbos or Sunday rest. It used to be plugged into our cultural, you know, other forms of you know, you know, religion used to do this for people, but. You know, whether you're religious or not, it, you know, just finding that time to, you know, check out, reflect, and rest and yes. do nothing. And, yeah. and it's so complicated in this technological world. I'm an engineer. I love technology. We have Apple products all over our, <laughs> our home. And we're using one now to connect with someone who's really cool and who's interesting. And, and we're having a great conversation through a wonderful technology. However, uh, there are, all, there are also you know, studies that have shown that, that kids um, become, uh, more so than adults because of their immature brains, become even more uh, addicted, if you will, that's kind of used loosely, to 
the uh, need for that kind of stimulation. And the, the, when you have so much coming at you externally, so much stimulation, so much information coming at you externally, then you are intrinsically not going to be producing as much outwardly. Hmm. And so you, 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 your creativity, to some degree, can be impaired by that process, Gary. Yes, and I think, so part of it too, William James was um, a Harvard psychiatrist who wrote in the late 1800s, and he actually, I love his phrase, the two phrases, directed and undirected thinking, and he was onto something that's really important now. We need both. We need to be able to be cerebrally focused, directed thinking, focused thought, but we also need that daydream time in order to be creative and actually to digest what we learn. I mean, the mind cannot develop properly if there's no downtime. This is kind of what amazes me about schooling and like why people just pile this stuff on the kids without giving them a breather. There is, there is, you know, the breather is necessary for their minds, their intellect, their intellectual curiosity to actually develop. And that's really where creativity comes from because there's an opportunity to say, well, I learned this and I learned these 17 things, but let me put thing seven together with thing 16, which hasn't been done before. And wow, here's, here's a way of, you know, solving another problem. I mean, we really need that downtime for creativity. Yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f- are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. So So that takes us to three of them, right? Right. Insight, movement, mind rest. What are the other two? You're so on two you're hands. on two hands, which is is something that that many people have really latched onto, and we certainly have because we know from weirdly from both of our practices, um, we share uh, confidentially. We don't tell the patient's name and reveal the specifics of the patients, but we would share anecdotes from our practices. Um, and from my perspective. I deal with patients every day who lose their hand function, and my job is to try to give that back to them and help them help them regain it. And so we can watch, and, and I, I certainly do every week, see the anxiety and the despair and the de- frank depression that comes from people who have lost the ability to earn a living, who have lost the ability to play their musical instruments, who have lost the ability to... to uh, saw the boards and, and, and build the things they need to build for that to sustain themselves. And so this is, was very poignant for us. And then Carrie was seeing it from another perspective. You want to talk about how you were seeing it? Yeah, I mean, I, I just specifically, I had somebody come in, uh, you know, an academic person who did just a lot of papers, a lot of research, a writer, 
um, in Manhattan and something broke in his apartment and he had said he hadn't taken out his toolbox in 20 years. He used to live, I guess, on a farm in, in Pennsylvania somewhere. And he, anyway, he fixed it and he said he felt so euphoric and so happy and it was very surprising to him. Had patients come in and tell similar stories about just starting to knit or play the cello and they were very surprised in the change of, about the change in their mood. So, you know, we have the we have the Maker Fair, we have the do-it-yourself movement. You know, just as the arts and crafts movement followed the Industrial Revolution, I think this these movements are following the technological revolution or evolution. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's really we need that balance, and there's you know a lot of evidence to suggest that there's the concrete satisfaction that comes out of making is is really important for self-esteem and happiness. And many people will tell you, I'm happy when I cook, I'm happy when I garden, you know, so it's... Yeah. I mean, uh, the philosopher Anaxagoras said the hand is the window to the mind. Mm-hmm. And and we certainly believe that uh, uh, quite profoundly. Frank Wilson, a famous neurologist, wrote a book called The Hand. And in that described many aspects and much of the science that we have... That we have um, have accumulated, and there's much more that's been accumulating almost almost on a monthly basis. But one of the aspects, one of the fundamental aspects of the hand is that so much of our brain's higher thinking is devoted to the hands, actually 60% of it. And if we aren't using our hands meaningfully, then we are not stimulating our brains in ways that can actually improve our cognitive health and well-being. And Dr. Kelly Lambert I, was one of the earlier researchers on this, and she's a neuroscientist down in Virginia, and she found out that purposeful hand use elevates mood. She it, she did a lot of studies on this, and, and so what does purposeful mean? Well, everyone has to define that for themselves. For her, she said she was surprised that when she was vacuuming, tending to her home and her family, she felt better. In times of, of difficulty, I think her mother was dying or something like that. And it was a way that she could feel connected to people that she loved, who were there, that she could take care of and that. So I think that for everybody, you know, just thinking about that in your life, what is it for you? I mean, it could be repairing. It could be just, you know, fixing up your home. It could be making a painting. It could be playing an instrument. But finding that thing that is important to you can be very important. It also can help in terms of getting through trauma. People have found that when you have a habit like that, you know, a creative habit like that or, or a hand habit like that, um, and it's, it's well developed in you and you can fall back on it in difficult times, it can be very comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the Root Bernsteins, a husband and wife team, did a lot of interesting research. And one of their uh, fascinating studies was they looked at award-winning scientists and they took a large number of them and they tried to find what the common denominators for these uh, high-level scientists were. And the one common denominator they could find across the board was that they were all tinkerers. They all had workshops and had projects, maybe related, maybe unrelated to what their research was. But the, the one common denominator they found was just that, and we so we kind of thought, uh, thought of the phrase, thinkers tinker. And so it's really that, that this, this sometimes mindless hand use can actually be very stimulating to let ideas sublimate and stimulate right. creativity. So it's, it's paradoxically cerebrally stimulating. So. That's the fourth one, right? And there's one That's more. The one. So the last one is mind shift. And it's really the basic premise there is, is trying to move from a dark kind of negative, depressed place to a more positive, more able, more um, hopeful place. And you know, things have changed a lot since I was a resident. You know, when I was a resident, we talked about cognitive behavioral therapy a little bit. Now cognitive behavioral therapy, which has to do with changing your thoughts, changing your thoughts, because when you change your thoughts, you can change your mood. What you think has a big impact on your emotional state. And a lot of people have trouble changing their thoughts. So techniques that are designed to help you learn to change your thoughts are very, very powerful. And so cognitive behavioral therapy has become the treatment of choice of late for many, many ailments, such as you know, anxiety, depression, and so forth. Um, again, William James said, that psychologist um, from long ago s- said that the greatest weapon we have against stress is the ability to change our thoughts. Positive psychology is a new, relatively new, it's been out in 10, 15 years, but this is a, it's the same thing where if you try to emphasize 
what you're grateful for, try to do altruistic things, connect with other people, sort of positive life interactions can shift your mood. And of course, Shakespeare said, nothing is good or bad, but thinking makes it so. And so um, we can't get into the techniques here, but there are techniques for meditation is another one um, for helping you move your mind to another place and therefore change your mood. Right. And I think that, that to, to, it's really about something that we kind of talk about as good life medicine, where you are not just taking pills to try to combat these, these, uh, especially the depression, anxiety, but rather you're gradually incorporating these changes into your lifestyle and leading to both psychological change as well as physical change, as mm-hmm. well as cognitive change, as well as emotional change. And so we, we firmly believe in these, in these uh, habits which um, can, uh, can achieve this through, through, with good science to back it up. And the other, the other two that originally we didn't tack on to the five-part prescription but really are very integral to wellness are exposure to nature, which I think everyone gets intuitively, and the other is what we call true connections, which is having very meaningful relationships somewhere in your life. I mean, it could be with, a, you know, a colleague, it could be with a friend, it could be with a family member, but somewhere where you can really be authentic, you know, whether it is bearing your soul or whether it's being free to have a create to, to have a creative thought or take a risk where you feel very safe. And so I think those can be very profound. I mean, studies have shown that people get better faster with those kinds of friends. There was a study or, or, or relationships. There was a study also from Virginia that uh, showed that students who faced a very steep hill and were asked to uh, carry a heavy backpack up this steep hill, those that could do it with a friend um, saw the hill as less steep. So I have the reference to that in my book, and I'm sorry that I can't mm-hmm. credit those people right now. But I, I just, you know, that there's it's pretty profound, I think. Yeah, I, that, that, I, a, that a relationship can make make a difference. And, like and it's that. been written yeah. about. This is not our idea, certainly. And it's yeah. been written about that while there are many, many, many wonderful aspects um, and sea changes that occur through social media, mm-hmm. it can be a little bit of a slippery slope, and you can get uh, become uh, so absorbed into social media. That, and and I think one one study recently said that eighty percent of our activities on social media are self absorbed, self referential. <laughs> So, you know, naturally, when you're in a human, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, a physical relationship where you're in the same room with someone and interacting uh, face-to-face, there is just less of an ability to carry out a self-absorption process uh-huh. because you're just there with the person. And and I think that, that uh, there has been a trend in our culture to get away from that sitting down and just having a conversation with someone else. And, and also, I just want to say, too, that, you know, there's also some articles that have come out. David Brooks wrote something, and uh, there was something, uh, you, you know, about it was, these things were about college students and, and the question of um, character. But it's we don't talk about it, Alton and I are interested in it, not so much from a moralistic point of view, but from a mental health point of view, because actually character is actually something that makes people happy. This Martin Seligman did research on this. Um, he's the one who started positive psychology. He's a psychologist at Penn. But basically, you know, the six virtues which have to do with sort of concern about others, compassion, caring, empathy, connectedness, all those things make people happier. It's actually what makes people happy. So a lot of really fascinating stuff here. And, uh, you know, I have a few questions around some of this, uh, you know, personal questions and, and other ones that just, uh, you know, I think are, are useful for listeners. On the insight piece, you know, I, I remember reading that part of the book and I'm really curious. I mean, are there some tactical things that we can apply from that section uh, as listeners, as, as creative people um, that sort of start to help us on the path to incorporating this process into our life? Yes, yes. So, um, right. So keep a journal, whether it's on your device, you know, sometimes I'll use my notes section on my phone, um, or use it, keep a small pen and pad. It depends on what you feel like doing, but your thoughts are important. Your ideas are important. And even if you're not ready to share them or you don't want to share them, they can be very used. If you're very, someone, a writer once said to me, you know, if I'm driving and I see this really beautiful sunset and for some reason, it makes me think of some memory that, you know, she said, I stop and I record it. That's the thing. I think Joan Didion, she's a writer, she said the difference between 
those that write and those that don't is the writer's notebook. But the point is, we're all in a certain way writers of our own lives and experience. And so we have to honor those moments that are meaningful. If they're charged, write them. It takes you to a deeper place within yourself. It can help you understand something important in you. Honor your dreams. Honor those wisps of thoughts that you know you think are random, but they're probably not. It's just really giving yourself permission to pay attention to what's going on inside of you. And, and also creating a, a safe environment where you can, and knowing yourself and having the insight for this, find the people that you can share those, those tribulations and, and, and worrisome thoughts or just radical thoughts you might be having and that you, that you can have a safe forum of exchange for that. And right. that, that exists in many forms, but that can help so much because others insight of you can actually enhance your own inside of yourself. Right. And that gets back to the true connection. So, you know, you can write it down or you can have a conversation with somebody that you really trust. Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, the, obviously as somebody, you know, I always say as a writer, I always say when all else fails, I turn to the blank page. And I think that's, that's been pretty indicative of, of being something very therapeutic throughout our conversation. Uh, you know, I want to ask you guys about the mind rest piece, and I want to talk about it from the context of technology and how it's impacting our lives. I mean, especially because we, we just talked about being more connected than we've ever been. And yet, you know, we had Seth Godin here and he said, you know, we're also lonelier than we've ever been. Right. Uh, right. And I'm I'm curious, you know, as doctors, I mean, what are we seeing that's potentially detrimental for our long-term health? Uh, as somebody who spends, admittedly, probably way too much time on Facebook, there are moments where I'm like, what the hell is this doing to me mentally? And what, you know, what, what are the potential harms that we need to watch out for? And I'm really curious what you guys have seen in your research and, and what you've seen with patients uh, as a byproduct of this modern, hyper-connected world that may not be good for us. Right. So Sherry Turkle, who is a psychologist at MIT, she wrote a book called Alone Together, where she really examines this subject in depth. And, um, you know, I think it's a, a complicated question. The DSM, the new DSM uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Psychiatry is going to conclude something or does include something called Internet Use Disorder, I think. I have to just check, check on that. But I've heard, so we're seeing new sorts of ailments that have come out of technology. So the bottom line is, again, it's self-awareness. You need to understand, I think, how it's affecting you. If, you, if it becomes sort of addictive and you feel compelled to get on there and check everything, but that's making you anxious, just for the first thing, just be aware of it. Be aware of it, self-awareness. Because when we're aware, we take note, we might be able to change things. So it's all about balance. And so... If, you know, this, what we're doing here today, I think is, is a conversation that, that is, um, helpful for us and, and, you know, helps us get to a deeper place and think about things in, you know, in, in another way. But, um, when you're on the internet to see how many likes you get, or, you know, if you write, I mean, how many shares, things like that, it can create anxiety. And the thing that worries me about that is that, Age-old wisdom from Boethius, who was a philosopher who wrote, I think, in the 1500s, to current-day philosophers, the, the idea of the internal life, you know, being able to sort of have quiet, the quiet mind, and, and convene and not have a lot of stimulation coming, um, coming from the outside, that is the greatest form of solace for people. And what I worry about with the Internet is that as great as it is, it may be depriving a lot of us and some people and even children of understanding that that's a real option. You know, going into your, what, what's called, what Boethius called self-possession, going into that place where it's you and your mind and your thoughts and your memories and your daydreams. And when those things come up, you can become euphoric. So we want to make sure that's an option for people. Yes. And, and so, so that's a clear psychological component to this, but forget about that. Even if everyone was blissfully happy with their not, which they're not, and they're, and even if there was not an exponential rise in anxiety and depression in our culture, which there is, we still, by sitting at our computers and sitting at our uh, tablets at hour after hour after hour, we have created a situation where there is a very clear, there's been an exponential rise in childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood osteoporosis. And it becomes, once you have not built up your bone mass by moving out in nature and moving, you're going to, you're going to suffer medical problems as well. It's, it is a medical problem as well as a psychological problem is my point. 
And, and, and the other thing just quick that worries me about it too, is that, you know, I've seen, I've seen this uh, with my children and I've worried about it a little bit. The, what you put up, right? I mean, I've heard people being envious. Oh, those other people look like they're having such a great time and I'm not having a great time or so-and-so looks so much more attractive or so-and-so has so many more friends or it really can affect self-esteem in a negative way. So that's, that's one of the worries, you know, is the false self that has to be projected. And then, you know, that, that becomes anxiety producing Right. I, for the person who's doing it as well as the person, people who are witnessing it. Right. I mean, so. cy- cyberbullying is a whole nother yeah. topic. <laughs> profound, yeah. of yeah. profound yeah. import. Right. Well, I mean, the projection of the false self, and we could do a whole episode just on that. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, I think that I, I've talked about this with somebody else. Said, you know, to, to a large degree, our entire life online is, is a projection uh, of who we are as people. We get People get a one-dimensional view into our lives, and they make assessments uh, yeah. about who we are, which to me is, is really kind of disturbing and, and yet fascinating. You know, one other thing I, I want to ask you about this, again, is also out of personal curiosity, is, is what these kinds of interactions online do to our sort of reward system and dopamine. Because, I, I you know, I started doing some digging on this around Facebook yeah. uh, just because of a personal experience. And, I you know, like it, it kind of blew my mind that, okay, you could become so addicted to something and that that being gone could really actually cause some serious damage. Right, right. Yes. Well, you know, it, it, dopamine, if it stimulates the pleasure center, then, then yes, you're going to keep doing it. And I think that's part of what this does when, when you look for those numbers to go up in terms of shares or likes or people responding to you and so forth. A lot of people keep checking back to get more of that, and it is addictive. I think it's a little bit tricky, like, you know, for me, because I read a blog for Psychology Today, I... You know, I do that and I become very interested in the numbers because that tells me if I'm doing something that matters to people, mm-hmm. you know, like, and that's important information for me because if, if I, if people don't respond to it that well, I think, well, I'm not communicating, I'm not communicating the point well, or, you know, maybe I see this as important, but other people are not really concerned about that right now. It sort of teaches me yeah, what it, matters to other it, people. So I can learn from it. But on the other hand, you know, it can become a whole issue of am I popular, am I not? And I think we have to try to really stay away from that. Right. Or it can yeah. prevent you possibly from covering topics that aren't nece- uh, that may be a little more taboo that that still are critically important. Right. And so it, it's, it's again, it goes back to that uh, insight in right. knowing yourself and knowing how to balance these clear technological necessities that we have with the other forms of more perhaps traditional, uh, simpler uh, activities that can be so enriching and so important to our health. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't start the day on the computer. I start with pen and paper. Yeah, that's, that's right. what that, that's I do too. So yeah, so it's funny. I, you know, I roll out of bed and then I've got to just have that paper and pen and I just scribble, scribble, scribble all the junk from my mind and then can write something after that. I know? start mine with a scalpel. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that works too. Yeah. <laughs> Using your own two hands. You know, I guess, you know, I, I want to start wrapping things up because this has been just absolutely fascinating. Like I said, the science behind it was what really intrigued me. I'd be really curious to to hear this um, sort of process told through the lens of the story of maybe one of your patients who who went through a healing process uh, by by going through all of this, just so somebody can really understand that you know this could be really powerful for pulling them out of sort of you know darkness, depression, or even if they've suffered an injury or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I might I was just wondering if you might have any anecdotes around that. I mean, I think we both do. I, you know, I recently someone told me a young mother, and I you know this is whole other subject. You know, because motherhood can be a very big adjustment for people, and as blissful and as wonderful as it is, there are some dark phases, you know, in terms of motherhood. And I think a lot of people are afraid of those feelings or ashamed of those feelings. And someone recently told me a young mother that, you know, following the steps of the creativity, creativity cure saved her and helped her and kept her grounded. You know, if she remembered to write a little bit and to move a little bit and to just not feel guilty about having some downtime and to make, you know, to cook, she liked to cook. And, you know, these things helped her. And I think it's just Sometimes the culture, the trends of the culture, take us far away from the things that we really need to be well. And it's nobody's fault, but it's, it's just a matter of awareness. We have to bring ourselves back. So if the culture is taking you away into just being obsessed with technology, say, okay, technology is great, but I need to go back and, and do these other things to be well. And, you know, I've had many patients tell me that 
just when I get on, when I start playing my guitar, when I start writing my script, when I, you know, again, the toolbox person, they, there's an, a profound change in mood. It's, it's, it's amazing. It always amazes me every single time I hear it. I, um, yeah, there are, there, I think I'm amazed. I know this happens with Carrie all the time, but it happens to me as well, where I'm, I'm obviously, I've learned a lot psychologically from Carrie, who's an expert, but, um, and I know very little, relatively speaking, but I can pick up on little clues and uh, p- patients will, I'll read the patients a little bit and I'll say something and then they'll just break down crying. And it'll be something unrelated to my orthopedic care, but it will be related to their whole body mm-hmm. and their, their, their psyche. And I, yeah. one instance I remember was a young violinist, a uh, young lady who came in with both arms, uh, both wrists and forearms hurting, all this pain, all this apparent tendonitis. She'd already seen five different people and been treated with splints and exercise and medications and so forth. She came in with her parents, both of whom were violinists. And so I, um, I was talking to her and they were answering all the questions. So I asked them, I said, and she was all, she was 20. And I, I asked them to step out. I just wanted to kind of see her alone and get the story. And, and I just asked her, I said, do you want to be playing violin? And she broke down crying. And she didn't want to be playing violin. She had grown up with two professional violinists who had always taught her. And she was a great violinist. But it wasn't what she wanted to do. It wasn't organic for her. So, yeah, I think that it's getting back to the authentic self, yeah. right? I mean, just because, I mean, yes, we want people to play instruments and use their hands. But uh, the bottom line, and this gets back to the insight part, is being true to yourself. Maybe there's something else, you know. Yeah. And so I think all of our stories, uh, however many we could tell, and we could tell many, many, all are component parts of this, and all were sort of the pieces that put this together. Almost, as, as we've pointed out many times, and even patients come in, or I mean, I'm sorry, people come in who've read the book and say, oh, well, I already do X, Y, and Z. Three of them. I already do three of them, which is great. That means they're almost there. So you just add on. So have that insight and kind of look at it and see, well, I do this. I exercise a lot, but I have no insight whatsoever. I don't, I'm just a, you know, whatever. I don't reflect on anything going on and I need to start doing that and that will give me, make me happier. And, and I think, you know, the, the, the happiness idea that we're trying to create is, is one of more happy moments. Yeah. Yeah, I think we need to clarify that because, you know, we're not saying that you can reach a a state of permanent happiness, but make make good choices, you know, the right choices for you, you can really increase the number of happy moments in your life. I mean, I think that's pretty self-evident. I don't think anyone needs to be told that. I mean, it's logical. Yeah. 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 So. Well, this is, this has been just mind blowingly cool and interesting. Uh, I have one last question and this is how we close all our interviews. Uh, you know, you guys have seen creative people. You have written a book. You you witnessed artists of all kinds. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable in the world today? Wow. Um, what would you say to that? I would say that makes someone is yes truly authentic with a significant amount of originality to that thought, but. A generosity of spirit, I think, is something that goes far beyond so much else in terms of, of, of what you give the world. And if you have these, everyone has a little originality in them, but the un- unmistakably so is when you are handing that or, or giving that out to the world in a truly generous way, in a selfless way. And I would, I would just, I would agree with that. And I would just add a little bit more. Willa Cather had a quote, that is happiness to be dissolved into something complete and great. So when you are doing something that is so thrilling for you and so passionate for you, and you convey that, and people are watching you do that, or you're sharing it, that's unmistakable because the energy that you have, the beauty that you project because of this thing that creates so much vitality in you, is, it's a gift, and I think it makes people unmistakable. Yes. I love it. Well, uh, let me just say I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to join us and, and share some of your insights with our listeners. The book is called The Creativity Cure. I'll, I'll link it up in the show notes. Can't recommend it highly enough. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative.
Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.